up all the time. We sin. We deliberately do things that are wrong. We have wrong thoughts, wrong motivations. We're sinners. We're born that way. And yet, in God's grace, he provided a lamb and a sacrifice so that our sins, the things separating us from him, could be erased and taken care of and dealt with at the most basic and fundamental level. And so now, because our sins are erased, we enter back into fellowship with him. And that is definitely a truth worth pondering and meditating on and singing about this morning. Well, I'm glad you're here. We're going to continue in our study of Exodus, so you can open up to Exodus chapter 17. I'm sure that every person in this room who is a follower of Christ can recount the times that God has provided for you um, and has provided for you and been faithful in the midst of very difficult circumstances. He brings in his timing, he brings the right people along, he provides financially when you need that. Maybe it's a word of encouragement that is given to you at the just the right moment when you, you feel like you need it. Maybe it's a job when things are looking particularly bleak and hopeless on that front. But I'm confident if you've been walking with Christ for even a short amount of time, he has provided for you when you needed something in his timing and in his way. And it's often necessary to remind ourselves of those times of God's provision. I was just reading something this week that said that we are wired, this is a Christian author, saying that we are wired in a way to remember the negatives and dwell on the negatives much more than we are on the positive things and the blessings. We sort of carry this like low-level cynicism with us. And we do live in a broken world, and we don't want to underplay that, but at the same time, as we just sang, we have been richly blessed spiritually and oftentimes materially. We have been provided for beyond what we could imagine. And so God does that work, and he provides for us, and we need to remember those gifts spiritually and otherwise, and remember what he has done in the past, and that will strengthen us and encourage us and allow us to face the future and to face the future times of trials and suffering that surely will come and face them in a way that trusts the Lord in the midst of those times. There's a reason in the New Testament that we read all over the place about the importance of perseverance in the Christian life. That is a major theme for those who follow Christ. You don't start and then stop. He wants us to make it to the end. He wants us to persevere. And much of the New Testament is written in a way to encourage us along that route. He wants us to, to make it to the end. He wants our faith to last. He doesn't want us to quit the marathon at the 23rd mile. Make it all the way to 26.2 and finish the race. Run the race with endurance. You know this passage from Hebrews 12. Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured. We can endure because he endured the cross, despising the shame and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. 
And so you and I are meant to learn, and it is a process of learning. It doesn't click all at once, but we are meant to learn to trust God, much like a runner's body learns through practice and through effort and through discipline to go greater and greater distances. We learn to trust him through difficult times. It takes time. It takes practice. But our faithful perseverance, learning in the midst of suffering to trust him, comes as we see his faithful provision. And so there's a certain rhythm to this in our Christian lives. We experience suffering, and we learn through those trials and suffering that God provides for us. And we trust him more, and so that leads us in the future to encounter trials and suffering, hopefully with a more steady trust in God. And then as he provides again, that builds us up more, and we can go greater and greater distances. And that's how perseverance and patience with joy is built into us. Now, this is true of Israel in what they're facing right now in Exodus 15, 16, and 17 in the wilderness. We saw it last week in chapters 15, the end of 15, and then 16, Israel faced a couple of significant struggles and difficulties while they're in the wilderness. They're on their way to Mount Sinai, and eventually they're on their way to the Promised Land, and they faced these significant trials, you would say. They were lacking in food. They were lacking in water. And in those moments, God came through in a miraculous way, provided for them, and they were meant to learn from that. That's the whole reason, as we'll see, that they're in the wilderness, is so they can learn what it looks like to trust him and to respond in confidence and obedience to him. And as we move into chapter 17, we're going to see more trials in the wilderness. Much of the same thing will happen And God will continue to provide and continue to meet their needs. And so we want to ask the question today, what is a proper response to God's continued provision? I mean, we've seen a couple of times in chapter 16, him provide, 15 and 16. And now they continue to face trials and he continues to provide. And when you see this over and over again, what is a proper response? How do we we deal with this? God's continued provision. There's a lot we, you and I, can learn from this. And so today in this this chapter, we're going to cover all of chapter 17. We're going to see two responses to God's continued provision for his people. And that word continued is very important and significant because I think that's the word that gets you and I. We sort of know in the back of our minds that God provides, but he does it over and over and over and over again. And as we focus on the fact that he's faithful and consistent, how do we respond to that continued provision? And so the first response is that he is to be trusted and not tested. He is to be trusted and not tested. And this is in chapter 17, verses 1 through 7. Now, of course, if you're following with us in Exodus, you know that in the narrative, they, the nation has been released from Israel, miraculously delivered, not from Israel, from Egypt. The nation of Israel has been miraculously released from Egypt, delivered from the army, and they're heading out into the wilderness, and they're moving as one giant group of people, one giant nation with all of these tents and animals, absolute chaos, I'm sure, and they're moving through these different areas of wilderness, 
and they're on their way to Mount Sinai. That's where God is taking them. Look at verse 1. All the congregation of the people of Israel moved on from the wilderness of sin by stages according to the commandment of the Lord and camped at Rephidim. Then the end of verse 1, but there was no water for the people to drink. You can clearly see here there's another problem that has come up. Again, there's no water. They're in the wilderness. There's lots and lots of people, lots of animals, lots of children, and they don't have enough water, or here it sounds like any water for them to drink. And so they're encountering this trial, but I want you to notice and make sure you see this very clearly. How did they end up here? It's not because they did something stupid and made a mistake. Look at the middle of verse 1. By or according to the commandment of the Lord. God is directing them to this place with no water. He is the one leading them there. And he has been leading them throughout the wilderness. And let me remind you of why he is taking them into these difficult spots. If you flip back in your Bible to chapter 15 and verse 25, the second half of verse 25, it says, There the Lord made for them a statute and a rule, and there he tested them. He's testing them to see what's inside of them and to teach them and instruct them on how to trust him and how to follow him. And then look down at chapter 16 in verse 4. Then the Lord said to Moses, Behold, I'm about to rain bread from heaven for you, and the people shall go out and gather a day's portion every day, that I may test them whether they will walk in my law or not. And so once again, in chapter 17, God is a very persistent instructor, and he leads them to a place where there's no water, and once again, he puts them to the test. He wants to reveal what's in their hearts so that they can see it clearly and so that they can learn from it and adjust and develop into a people who trust him. Because that's ultimately what God's plans are for them, for them to represent him as his chosen people, to be a kingdom of priests before the nation. We'll see that in chapter 19. So he's trying to instruct them. But unfortunately, even though he has miraculously provided over and over again continued provision, we see very quickly that they have not learned really at all to trust him yet. Look at verse 2. Therefore, the people quarreled with Moses and said, give us water to drink. And Moses said to them, why do you quarrel with me? Why do you test the Lord? Now, we've seen the people kind of go after Moses in chapters 15 and 16, and this word, quarrel, here is a little bit of a stronger and more intense word. Not only have they not learned to trust the Lord in this sort of circumstance, but actually here it seems like they're sort of going the opposite way. They're more intense and more agitated and more angry in the midst of this trial and of this time of difficulty. And you'll notice that Moses is able to very quickly diagnose exactly what's going on in their hearts. Look at, again at the end of verse 2. Why do you quarrel with me? And then he says, why do you test the Lord? And this is what they're doing when they start to quarrel with Moses and blame Moses. This is what's going on in their hearts. They are testing God. Now, 
Think about this dynamic for a moment. We just read in chapter 15 and 16 that God brought Israel into the wilderness to test them. And that is a perfectly legitimate thing for God to do. There's nothing wrong and there's everything right with God testing Israel. But it is not okay for the reverse to happen. It is not okay for Israel to now turn and try to do the same thing to God, to test him. Why? Well, when God tests Israel, he's trying to reveal what's in their hearts. He's trying to show them their lack of trust in his character. It's not okay for Israel to test God because God's character is not in doubt. He is who he is, as he told Moses and the people earlier in the book of Exodus. And Israel should have known at this point what's in his heart. They should have known the type of God that he is. He has provided for them over and over again in Egypt and in the wilderness. He's consistent. He is faithful. He's loving. He's powerful. And they should have known that at this point. And so what they're really doing here is they're really trying to manipulate God. They're trying to use the circumstances to get what they want out of him in their timing, in their way. They're basically saying that they're not going to trust God unless he operates how they want him to operate. They want to be in control. They want to set the terms of God's provision. They want to dictate how they are provided for. And they're treating God by doing this like a charm that they can come to and get what they want when they want it. Now, the root issue for Israel here, what's really going on in their hearts, is not their lack of trust in God's ability to provide. They have seen that over and over again. They know that he can do what he wants to when he wants to. The root issue here, it seems to me, is that they are doubting his love and his care for them. They know he can, but they're just not sure if he wants to. They just don't know if he actually cares for for them. They're doubting that he wants to meet their needs. Now, I don't know about you, but it's very easy for my heart to slip into this mode of thinking. I know God's powerful. I know he can do what he wants to do. But when the road gets bumpy, I start to think, man, does he really want what's best for me? Does he really love me? I get frustrated with the circumstances and with the situation. And I start to doubt in my heart, that God actually knows what's best and will do what's best for me in a particular circumstance. And what I've done in that situation, and maybe you've done this before too, is I have defined God's love on my terms. I have tried to order God into loving me in a particular way. And I've tried to say, if you love me, you will do this. And if you don't do it my way, I'm going to get frustrated with you. And when you do that, And when I do that, I have put myself at the center. I have dethroned God and exalted my own desires and my own wants and put myself at the center of the universe. And when when you and I do that, 
we often get frustrated and find a scapegoat for our frustration. And that's exactly what Israel does here. You saw in verse 2 them quarrel with Moses. Now look at verse 3. But the people thirsted there for water, and the people grumbled against Moses and said, Why did you bring us up out of Egypt to kill us and our children and our livestock with thirst? And things get really intense here. And they get so intense that Moses begins to respond in somewhat of a negative way to Israel. Look at verse 4. So Moses cried to the Lord, what shall I do with this people? They are almost ready to stone me. And so God hears this, and what does God do? Look at verses 5 and 6. And the Lord said to Moses, pass on before the people, taking with you some of the elders of Israel, and take in your hand the staff with which you struck the Nile. We'll come back to that in a second and go. Behold, I will stand before you there on the rock at Horeb, and you shall strike the rock, and water shall come out of it, and the people will drink. And Moses did so in the sight of the elders of Israel. And notice, God instructs Moses to take the elders of Israel, and he tells him specifically to take the staff, and he points out this is the staff of God that was used to strike the Nile River. In Egypt, God had used this staff to strike the Nile, and it had deprived Israel's enemies of water. And now, in God's power and provision for his people, he's going to take the same staff and do the same action, and he's going to strike this rock, and God is going to provide water for his people. And so God's power works in favor of his people, demonstrating his love and his care and showing them that he ought to be trusted and not tested. They ought to depend on him. He has continued to provide, and he does it again, and they need to learn to trust him even when there's no water, even when it's difficult. Look at verse 7. And he, Moses, called the name of the place Massa and Meribah, Because of the quarreling of the people of Israel and because they tested the Lord by saying, is the Lord among us or not? Now, this incident, it's short, it's compact here, but this incident becomes a defining moment for generations, for instruction in the coming generations in Israel. And Moses gives it two names here, which is a little bit unusual. He calls it Masa, and he calls it Meribah. Both are given to the same incident here. And it's so that they can remember this, and so they can remind themselves of what happened here. And these two names that he gives it pull together the important elements that he wants Israel to remember. Masa means testing. They tested God, and they were tested here. And Meribah means strife or quarreling. And they tested God, and they quarreled and fought out of their own self-centered desires as they tested God. Now let me show you how this is picked up by later generations of Israelites and how this is used to instruct people who would come in the nation of Israel later on. You can flip over, if you want, to Psalm 95. We're gonna, I don't normally ask you to turn in your Bible, but we're going to do a couple of sword drill things this morning. Psalm 95. 
I think I have it on the screen, but that's all right. Or part of it. So Psalm 95, written much later, gives us a reference to this story. And it's written to encourage and to instruct the Israelites in their praise of God. And specifically while they were in exile, it was written to them. The Psalm 95, Psalm 95 begins by calling us to praise the Lord, as you would expect in most Psalms, right? So look at verse 1. Oh, come, let us sing to the Lord. Let us make a joyful noise to the rock of our salvation. Let us come into his presence with thanksgiving. Let us make a joyful noise to him with songs of praise. For the Lord is a great God and a great king above all gods. He is the creator, he goes on to explain, and he is the redeemer. He is all-powerful, and he is to be worshipped, and he is to be praised. And then, interestingly enough, after this call to worship, the psalmist pivots and says, basically, in light of who God is, let me give you some clear instruction about how you should and should not respond to him. Look at verse 7. For he is our God, we are the people of his pasture and the sheep of his hand. Today, so this is to every generation of, of Israelite. Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as at Meribah. And so he's referring back to this incident in Exodus 17. As on the day at Massa in the wilderness when your fathers put me to the test and put me to the proof, though they had seen my work. Okay, so they put him to the test at Massa and then at Meribah, and then that same generation, look what happens to them. For 40 years I loathed that generation and said, they are a people who go astray in their heart. They have not known my ways. Therefore, I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. They wouldn't go into the promised land. Now, let me make a connection here, because this incident in Exodus 17 is not the moment where God decides that Israel, this generation, won't go into the promised land. That happens later in the book of Numbers. But what the psalmist is doing here is he's saying, this is where it started. And this is the same heart attitude and the same disposition and the same way of approaching God that is demonstrated later on. This moment in Exodus 17 sets a trajectory for the people and the nation of Israel. And what they're doing here is cultivating a continued distrust in God. And they're letting their hearts be hardened. They're watching God provide and provide and give and show his love and demonstrate his kindness. And they're rejecting it because their hearts are hard. Interestingly enough, he uses the word, the same word here in verse 8, do not harden your hearts as was used of Pharaoh, hardening his heart to the work that he was watching God do. And so eventually, this hardness of heart and this testing of God and rejection of his goodness seems minor in Exodus 17, but eventually it grows and it grows and it grows to the point where they reject God's leadership to go into the promised land, and this entire generation ends up dying in the wilderness because of what their hearts are demonstrating here. This ultimately destroyed them because of their sin. 
and because of their lack of trust and because of their testing of God. Now, what's amazing is that the New Testament picks this passage up, Psalm 95, and and applies it to you and I. And so I want you to turn to Hebrews chapter 3. So keep your finger or your bulletin or something in Exodus 17, and I want you to turn over to Hebrews 3. The writer of Hebrews picks up in 3 and 4 Psalm 95 and uses it to teach and to instruct us with this story. And he uses it to teach you and I an important lesson about perseverance, about trusting in God and continuing to watch him be good and and continuing to trust him in the midst of difficulty. Now, before I start reading, let me just say Hebrews, wonderful book. One of the main themes in the book of Hebrews is to compare and contrast all of these Old Testament figures and institutions and rituals with Jesus Christ. And so the whole point in the book is basically, look, you had the old covenant, Jesus is better. You had the sacrifices, he's the ultimate sacrifice. You had a high priest, look look at this high priest and look what he's accomplished. You had Moses. Moses was pretty fantastic, but he's nothing compared to Jesus. And that's the point of the book. And we have an even greater obligation and importance to trust in God because of our new covenant sacrifice and our new covenant high priest. And so look at chapter three and verse one. Therefore, holy brothers, you who share in a heavenly calling, consider Jesus the apostle and high priest of our confession, who was faithful to him who appointed him, just as Moses also was faithful in all God's house. For Jesus has been counted worthy of more glory than Moses, as much more glory as the builder of a house has more honor than the house itself. For every house is built by someone, but the builder of all things is God. Verse 5, now Moses was faithful in all God's house as a servant to testify to the things that were to be spoken later, but Christ is faithful over God's house as a son, and we are his house if indeed we hold fast our confidence and our boasting and our hope. And here's kind of the driving message of this passage and of our message this morning. Hold fast your confidence. Continue to trust in God's provision. We have a better mediator than Moses, and he can be trusted. We have a better leader than Moses, and Moses was great in his time. But we have the Son of God. Therefore, hold fast your hope and your confidence. Don't let it slip. He's still good. And now the author of Hebrews recalls this incident in Exodus 17 by quoting what we just read in Psalm 95. I know there's a lot of passages going on here this morning, but hopefully it's clear enough what's happening. He quotes Psalm 95 in verses 7 through 11. Look there. Therefore, as the Holy Spirit says, today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion on the day of testing in the wilderness where your fathers put me to the test and saw my works for 40 years. Therefore, I was provoked with that generation and said they always go astray in their heart. They have not known my ways. As I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. Now he takes that and he says, okay, 
you, me. Here's how this matters for us. Here's what we can learn from this. Verses 12 through 14. Take care, brothers, lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart leading you to fall away from the living God. But exhort one another every day, as long as it is called today, that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. That's exactly what happened to Israel. Learn from that. Watch it carefully. Be passionate about keeping your heart soft to Christ and to the Word of God. Verse 14, for we have come to share in Christ if indeed we hold our original confidence firm to the end. Continue to look to Christ. Continue to trust his goodness and his kindness. And then he continues, the the author of Hebrews continues to work out this passage. And then let's look down at verse 11 of chapter 4. Here's the kicker application for you and I. Let us therefore strive to enter that rest so that no one may fall by the same sort of disobedience. For the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and of spirit, of joints and of marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. And no creature is hidden from his sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give account. Here's what he's saying. Learn from the lesson of Israel and Massa and Meribah and let the word of God do its work on your heart this morning. That's the only option you and I have. The word is a sword and it cuts deep and it exposes our desires and our wants and it reveals sin to us so that we can deal with it. It shows us God's character and his goodness, but the word will not cut a hard heart. It will not do its work in your heart if you continue to see God's provision and His goodness and reject it and be self-centered. So how do we avoid a hard heart like Israel that won't be penetrated by the Word of God? We need Christ and we need one another. One of my favorite passages is that verse we read in Hebrews 3.13 where it says, but exhort one another day after day. Constant encouragement, constant speaking the truth in love. You and I need one another if we're going to make it to the end. It sounds precarious and it is because our hearts are wicked and they are hardened at times and we don't trust the word and we see God's provision for us, we fail to trust him. And so the encouragement here is meant to keep us on the path of trusting him and seeing his work and his continued provision and learning all we can from the word of God. So trust him and don't test him for our own purposes. That's just the first response that we have. Here's the second one, and it's much shorter. Two responses to God's continued provision for his people. He is to be trusted and not tested, and then he is to be obeyed and not ignored. Go back to Exodus 17 if you're not there. So God does the second miracle in the desert by providing water through Moses' staff, 
And now Israel continues on their journey, and they face something that they've not faced yet, military conflict. And this is another opportunity to trust God. Look at verse 8. Then Amalek came and fought with Israel at Rephidim. Now, Amalek, this guy, this, uh, in the ESV, it just says Amalek. It's short for his people, the descendants of Amalek. The original Amalek was actually a grandson of Esau, and his descendants over time sort of organized themselves into nomadic groups, and I was reading that they learned to ride camels and they would use their camels uh, to go and do raids on, on more uh, established nations. And they would try to seize plunder and goods from them. And this is just what they did. And so Israel has just come out of Egypt. They're not trained as an army. They don't have many men who are equipped for battle. They're not prepared for a raid like this. But here we read about Joshua for the first time in verse 9, and he's asked by Moses to assemble a group of fighting men. Verse 9, so Moses says to, said to Joshua, choose for us men and go out and fight with Amalek. Tomorrow I will stand on the top of the hill with the staff of God in my hand. You'll notice in verse 9, the focus here in this passage is on Moses and his location at the top of the hill, and what does he have with him? Well, it's the staff of God, again, the staff that he struck the rock with, did the miracles in Egypt with, and that staff is in his hand. Now, this staff will play an important role in this provision and this protection that God has for Israel here. Now, it's interesting in verse 9, he says, tomorrow I will stand on the top of the hill. I don't know how exactly this went down. I don't know if some of the um, Amalekite scouts were seen by the Israelites, and so they knew a raid was coming. I don't know if there was sort of an ultimatum from them saying, surrender your goods to us or we're going to attack you. But whatever the situation, Israel has a little bit of time to prepare for this fight. And so Moses instructs Joshua to do that. Whatever happened, battle ensues the next day. Look at verses 10 and 11. So Joshua did as Moses told him and fought with Amalek. While Moses, Aaron, and Hur, who was another important leader in Israel, went up to the top of the hill. Whenever Moses held up his hand, Israel prevailed. And whenever he lowered his hand, Amalek prevailed. So it's obvious from these verses that Israel's fighting force is not going to win this battle on their own. They are not prepared to fight this nomadic uh, raiding group without the help of God. They would lose this battle, and they do lose it unless Moses lifts the staff of God up into the air while he is on this hilltop. Now, I don't know about you, but I can hardly change a light fixture without my arms getting tired from reaching above my head. I have to take breaks, you know, oh, man. And so I don't know how Moses did this with lives dependent on him keeping his arms up in the air, but it got to the point where he could not do that anymore, and he needs a little bit of help. So look at verse 12. But Moses' hands grew weary, so they took a stone and put it under him, and he sat on it, while Aaron and Hur held up his hands, one on one side and the other on the other side. Now, this is not picturing Jesus on the cross with, you know, people holding on the sides. That's not what this is. It's not an allegory for that. 
It's just how it unfolded to make it clear that God is the one who is protecting and providing for Israel here. So, the end of verse 12, his hands were steady until the going down of the sun in verse 13, and Joshua overwhelmed Amalek and his people with the sword. Now, this is an interesting little story here, right? This is maybe one of those stories that you tell in children's ministry, and you're like, yeah, sure, God protected them, God provided for them, and that's about the extent of it as we normally read this story. But what does this story communicate to us in the flow of the book of Exodus and even beyond? Well, there are several themes that come together in verses 14 through 16 that tell us why this story is here and what we're to learn from it. First, you can see in verse 14 that this particular battle, the first time really that God provides for Israel militarily and fights with them and for them, Outside of Egypt, you can see that here. This, this is the first battle, and it needs to be written down so that the people of Israel can remember it, and Joshua in particular. Look at verse 14. Then the Lord said to Moses, write this as a memorial in a book and recite it in the ears of Joshua. And so the people need to remember this, but Joshua is the one who's going to lead Israel into Canaan. And he's going to lead them as an army to conquer the promised land. And so he needs to keep in mind this as an example of God's protection for Israel. You can also see in verses 14 and 16 that this is going to be a long-standing struggle with the Amalekites. Look at the end of verse 14. He says, to write it down for Joshua that I will utterly blot out the memory of Amalek from under heaven. Look at verse 16, uh, the very end of verse 16. The Lord will have war with Amalek from generation to generation. And this is going to be a long-standing thing primarily because of their sin against Israel. This, this fight is not provoked by Israel. They did not do anything to earn this. And this battle and tension between the Amalekites and the Israelites is going to last for generations and generations. And in fact, it's going to go all the way to the time of David and the time of Saul. And this group of people is actually what gets Saul in trouble and has him ended up losing the throne. 1 Samuel 15. And Samuel said to Saul, The Lord sent me to anoint you king over his people Israel. Now, therefore, listen to the words of the Lord. Thus says the Lord of hosts, I have noted... What Amalek did to Israel in opposing them on the way when they came up out of Egypt, now go and strike Amalek and devote to destruction all that they have. Do not spare them, but kill both man and woman, child and infant, ox and sheep, camel and donkey. And so this story ends up being what Saul disobeys. You remember this? He, he keeps the king Agag alive and Samuel comes and hacks him to pieces in order to accomplish God's word, it's a fantastic story, especially for children's ministry. He takes up his sword and cuts the guy to shreds out of passion for God's justice and for God's command. And so all of that we learn from this story here, but the key thing that Moses wants to communicate to us is found in verses 15 and in verse 16. And the key thing he wants to communicate to us has to do with God's character 
and with Israel's responsibility moving forward in the book of Exodus. Look at verse 15. And Moses built an altar and called the name of it, The Lord is my banner, saying, A hand upon the throne of the Lord. Well, that's kind of uh, enigmatic there. What is Moses talking about here? Well, the idea in this, this name that he gives to the altar, the Lord is my banner, the idea of a banner is a signal that would have been hoisted up during a military campaign, during battle, and the soldiers can see that banner or that signal raised high, and they can rally to that point for instructions. So God is that sort of centerpiece that can be rallied to for the Israelites. That's exactly what has happened in this story as Moses is on the hilltop raising the staff of God up. And Moses now connects him raising that staff up and God's uh, being a banner and a signal to God's presence. Look in verse 16. He says, a hand upon the throne of the Lord. What Moses is saying here is that the staff of God indicates God's presence with his people and that he's going to provide a signal or a banner for the people to run to. And having God's presence with you is like having a hand on the throne of God. It's like God's throne extends down and touches earth right here with the Israelites. And so his presence is with them to help them. One author put it like this. Maybe this will help. What Moses said then was, my hand was at or on Yahweh's throne. A way of saying, when I held up that staff, I was symbolizing the presence of Yahweh right with us, sitting on his throne, ruling over the battle, and helping us to win. Now for Israel, what changes here in the book of Exodus is Israel's participation with God's presence in winning this battle. It's clear they would not have been victorious without God, right? They would not have won the battle without him. But here, really for the first time, they were required to participate. They had to trust and to act by fighting the battle as God supported them. And in the future, they will need to respond to God's presence and to his protection with obedience. Now, when you read this name of God here, the Lord is my banner, my signal. I love this because amazingly enough, if you go forward to the prophet Isaiah and his very long prophecy, throughout the book of Isaiah, he is looking forward to God's future reign coming to the earth. And he describes what's going to happen, and he uses a term over and over again to talk about the future coming Messiah. And the term that he uses is the one that Moses uses here, Isaiah 11. In that day, the root of Jesse, who shall stand as a signal for the peoples, of him shall the nations inquire, and his resting place shall be glorious." And then verse 12, he will raise a signal for the nations and will assemble the banished of Israel and gather the dispersed of Judah from the four corners of the earth. So this is a looking forward and anticipating that the Messiah will be the one who is the banner, the rallying point, the presence of God among his people that we can look to and receive protection and provision 
because of his goodness and his kindness and his grace. And what is our response to God's banner, to his signal coming to us in Messiah? It's the same response that Israel needed to have here. Trust him and obey him. Let's pray. Father, we're thankful for your provision for us. Lord, we are here this morning sitting together, able to listen to your word, to sing praises to you, confident in our salvation in you, surrounded by friends and family. You have just given so much to us, Lord, spiritually and temporally. And help us to recognize your provision for us and your protection of us, and then to respond to your continued provision with with trust and not testing and with obedience and not pushing you to the side, but exalting you in the center of our assembly and in the center of our lives as the rallying point for everything that we need and everything that we want. We thank you for all you've done. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.